Welcome to Helpful Social Work. Social work has the power to change people's lives for the better. This podcast aims to help you learn, think and act with integrity so that people who need social work get help that will transform their lives. I'm Jerry. And I'm Jo, and this is our second podcast of June 2020. We're recording it on the 30th of the 6th, 2020. Um, our first podcast of the month was about the ingredients of a great social worker, looking at the equality and diversity domain. Thank you for continuing to listen. Uh, I understand that we've hit 60,000 downloads, Jerry, which is a fairly nice number. So you can tell us what you think about uh, what you're hearing, and you can do this by visiting our website, which is www.helpfulsocialwork.com, or by commenting on iTunes or on our Facebook page, Helpful Social Work Podcast. And we really do want to hear from you. It's one of the highlights, actually, when we hear about what people are thinking. I had a contact today, actually, from someone who said that they really enjoyed the um, podcast that we did around supervisions and assessments. So that was nice. They wanted to know more about containment and the idea of how we contain people. Great. So for the second podcast of each month, we said we'd um, talk about things that might be useful to social workers that are um, happening at the moment. So for this podcast, we are going to talk about Black Lives Matter. And we've thought quite hard about how to talk about this because Joe and I are white and we also have a lot of privilege. And although we can speak authentically from that position, um, we can't speak from other viewpoints um, but we do want to talk about it because um, as many of the placards have said um, from the movement white silence is complicity at best um, so we also thought that it would be good to open up the podcast and challenge ourselves more so we're going to be trying to bring in voices from things that people have said and written over recent weeks and we're also really lucky to have some guests with us so if um, Farina if you could introduce yourself Hi, I am Farina Shaheed. I am a black woman of Guyanese descent. I am a social worker. I've been in social work all my working life. Um, and I am taking part tonight for all kinds of reasons that I think could be quite obvious, but also because in recent weeks and months, I've tried really hard to get discussions going about anti-racism, racist practice and kind of the, the lack of black voices within our profession with colleagues. I've tried to have those discussions with white colleagues and I've just been utterly disappointed and kind of checked out of some of those discussions because people just haven't been engaging in it. My white colleagues haven't been engaging in it. And that kind of now leaves me much more aligned to um, Rennie Edo Lodge's position, why I'm no longer talking to white people about racism. That's me. Thanks, Farina. And we also have Anne with us. Hi, I'm Anne Shahid. I'm uh, married to Farina's brother and I'm on here to speak about my my views and opinions, uh, both as a white woman and also a mother of mixed race children. And, you know, I just want to speak about maybe how I've perhaps changed in my thinking and things that have influenced me along the way with that as well. Thank you. And thanks so much for joining us, both of you. Um, we're going to be talking about anti-racism in social work, but also probably more broadly. Um, and we're going to try and talk about some of the hard questions from a personal viewpoint. We won't necessarily have good answers or all the answers. Um, and certainly for Joe and me, um, we've talked about the, the, the thing that can hold white people back from talking about these things is that the fear of getting something wrong or exposing something 
wrong in yourself. Um, but the advice from people who generously have shared their wisdom about how to be an ally includes owning your privilege and also being prepared to talk about the uncomfortable, including how you're complicit. And that's something that we'll try to do with the help of our guests. Yeah, I think that's right, Jerry. We we um, need to have these conversations and certainly the conversations that I've had over at least the last decade with Farina have um, been really helpful for me, actually, and have, have changed my viewpoint quite a lot. And I'll, I'll talk about that during this podcast. But I thought it would be good if we put some context around um, the Black Lives Matters movement. Uh, it was founded in 2013 and it was in response to the acquittal of Trayvon Martin's killer. And Trayvon Martin, he was a 17-year-old African-American from Miami Gardens, Florida, and he was fatally shot. He was walking alone when a member of the community watch saw him and reported him to the police as suspicious. Several minutes later, there was an altercation and the community watch member fatally shot him. Um, this has been one of many, many incidences that have occurred. Uh, Black Lives Matter says that it's a global organisation in the US, the UK and Canada. And um, it definitely is in those places. But I'd also say that there's been some, certainly in, in Australia, there's been picking up of this as well. Um, their mission is to eradicate white supremacy and build local power to intervene in violence inflicted on black communities by the state and vigilantes. They say they're working for a world where black lives are no longer systemically targeted for demise. Uh, their statement is we affirm our humanity, our contributions to this society and our resilience in the face of deadly oppression. Um, I think that's a, a really powerful statement and a kind of terrible statement that anybody should have to make. Um, Joe, can I just jump in for one second? Yeah. I think what's really interesting as well is that the, the founding members, if you like, of Black Lives Matter, when they wrote their memoir, they called it when they call you a terrorist. And that's mm. part, of, part of their response, really. That's the title of their memoir, when they called you a terrorist. So I think that speaks volumes about how they were met, as it were. Mm. Yeah, thank you, Farina. That's that's really good, and that and that's where the we affirm our humanity, our contributions to this society, and our resilience in the face of deadly oppression comes from. So this movement had been going on, and I think gaining gaining strength, and um, you know, people were were um, engaging with it. But then on May the twenty fifth, twenty twenty, George Floyd, a forty six year old black man, was killed um, during an arrest for allegedly using a counterfeit bill and the white police officer knelt on his neck for almost nine minutes. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the last thing he said, which was, I can't breathe has, has become, you know, a calling card um, around the nation for black communities who are feeling as if they're being suffocated as well. And his death has triggered demonstrations and protests in more than 75 US cities and around the world, um, like I said, certainly here, certainly in Australia. And it's led to hundreds of major protests around the world. And this is, I guess, the reason why we're starting to um, talk about it here. Yeah, so we wanted to um, talk about four different questions and we're going to introduce one of them each um, and the questions will be introduced by comments from black activists from social media and then we'll, we'll have a bit of a discussion about each one so um, 
I just wanted to, to highlight a quote from Harry Sewell's blog, um, which was written shortly after George Floyd's murder um, on why black people in the UK and globally are upset and angry. And he talks about the reasons vary, um, along with many other people of whichever ethnicity, the circumstances are brutal and it looks like cold, intentional murder. But for some black people, the Floyd case is a reminder of what law enforcement or representatives of other authorities have already done to them or someone close. For some, again, it highlights the real death consequences of the negative representations of who they are. And for many black people, Harry goes on to say it feels really personal. Um, in response to immutable characteristics that have come to denote your race, you can be murdered. And for black people, this is terrifying at various levels. And it's also how he goes on to say a reminder that the political and judicial system and other powerful systems are stacked against you. That just because of the way you're perceived racially, it means that in any like for like scenario, your chances of thriving are slimmer. And in the most extreme situations, you're more likely to be harmed and killed by representatives of the state. And this is psychologically toxic. So the first question we wanted to discuss was about what the, the murder of George Floyd means to us. Um, and I think if I'd been asked that question shortly afterwards, I would have probably not been able to give much of an answer, actually, because um, like many people, I guess, I, initially it meant more of a news story from America than it meant a personal thing to me or a professional thing to me. And I think what's happened over the last weeks has has just really um, demonstrated how much this has to be everybody's um, has to be something for everybody. It has to be something that everybody responds to. Um, and certainly one of the challenges that I had from colleagues quite you know, straight, straight away early early on um, and from the social work community was, you know, why aren't people re responding to this and reacting to this more than they were? Um, and we'll talk, we'll talk more about that in a minute, but I just, just want to kind of open it up to, to other people to say what what it's meant for, for them as well. Well, I just wanted to say that um, actually it's quite interesting the reaction that there has been to George Floyd's murder, considering the amount of other murders there have been and why this particular murder was different. And whether that is to do with the current um, situation that we're in with COVID-19 and a particularly traumatic situation we're in where people are perhaps feeling things a little bit differently, a bit more hypersensitive to things that are going on because actually if you think about it you know it is pretty shameful that it took this you know George Floyd's murder to actually open up the debate because it's it's been going on for such a long time and I think for a lot of people myself included it's the realization that actually we've I'm speaking for myself as a white person been complicit in it in some way um in what's gone on that we haven't stood up that we haven't said what's been going on isn't right because this isn't anything new this isn't new in america it's not new in the uk but for one reason or another which we might even cover in the, the questions that are following this one um for some reason this time round it's hit it's hit a note somewhere and and people are actually standing up and i think perhaps people are starting to think maybe this can be the start of a, of a, you know, a question and a conversation. And I think the thing is, I think it's, 
it needs everybody to do their part. So I know this is like a social work podcast. So obviously you're going to be looking at it from that point of view. But I think it means um, everybody, every white person, certainly standing up in whatever organisation they're a part of and actually saying, what are we going to do about it? I think that's a really good point about the fact that, if, you know, in the, the pandemic, people have perhaps have more time on their hands. so They can see more of this kind of stuff as well. Mm. And uh, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because obviously I've been thinking a lot about Stephen Lawrence lately mm. and the fact that, you know, it took his family 19 years yeah. to wait for justice, didn't it? Yeah. You know, a degree of justice at that. But um, if we'd had social media back then that we do now, what? how different might that have been as well all, all of those kinds of things isn't it you know nothing is not filmed now is it so mm. I think I mean, that, that plays a big part as well I would guess but yeah I think the whole point about the pandemic and the time the fact that people are anxious anyway as you said Anne so this kind of gives them another this sounds derogatory but it's another um outlet for that anxiety for some people perhaps mm. I don't know I don't know yeah I think also, Farina, there was in my consciousness, there was already I was already kind of becoming aware of the fact that um, in the COVID pandemic, black and ethnic minority people were being overrepresented yeah. in the deaths. And so I was kind of already preoccupied with that. And what what's what does that mean? And why is that happening? And how do we understand it? And I was already bothered by kind of um, the early idea that it was either kind of genetic or their fault um, that was coming out in some of the in some of the conversations that were being had so for me my awareness my awareness of the structural inequity was already there and I think that this just kind of tipped me into really <laughs> like enough is enough really it was was kind of how I felt about it and it just it just feels that it's so wrong that any group of people can live their life thinking that the structures that are meant to keep us safe are dangerous. And I think that's a good point that you make about the structures, because I think actually that is where it's sort of embedded. I think the racism is embedded into the structures of, of our society. Mm. Um, and I mean, we've we've created that. So if we've created it, we can change it. And and that means us all, I think, in our one way or another, um, contributing to that and doing something about that, recognising it. And also it's probably going to mean maybe having some painful conversations some painful realisations about how we've done things previously. But being able to speak about that and acknowledge that and and, you know, just be truthful with ourselves, I think. Yeah. Yes, and I've, some of the reading I've been doing today has been saying really clearly that one of the strongest thing you can do about um, prejudice and bias um, and how you can prevent that from turning into active racism is to expose yourself constantly to your to to those uncomfortable conversations mm. and and deliberately look for opportunities to talk about this in a way that is giving you other messages and other images and other ways of thinking about people um so I, yeah i think that's right we've got to start with conversation one of the things that, that harry sewell talks about which i think is right is that the um sometimes these really horrific um 
racialized um, act actions, actually people just kind of think that's that's an exception. And I think it was the the, the number of people talking about how much it resonated with them and their own experience that really um, went from for me from thinking this is a, a terrible and um, exceptional event to actually this is this is a part of a big pattern that's um, that's woven into everything and um, and then personalizing that into okay well, what does that look like in my professional what does that look like in my life and in my home and in my community um, yeah I think that's that's where perhaps this has been a, a different for some white people than um, some of the other um, causes of protest and the stories have been quite stories some of them that you can really relate to in terms of their their experiences you've had too there was um a singer talking about her and her dad going into a mm. shop together and looking at crockery and kind of being shamed out you know told to put it down and told to mm. move away and what she said was that for her she knew that all the other white people in the shop didn't support what was happening but none of them said yeah. anything. Yeah. They just all moved away. And I thought, actually, I've been in some of those situations. Yeah. And that really kind of resonated quite strongly because you could feel her humiliation. Yeah. And then you started to think, I wonder how often I've just kind of turned away from something. Yeah, you're right, Joe. because I saw that podcast. That was Leona Lewis. Thank uh, you. She was speaking about that. And, um, yeah. And like you said, she said what what was hurtful. She kind of saw that other people were upset and with how they were being treated. But as you said, nobody actually said anything or some people just left the store and nobody actually challenged what was said. And I and, yeah, you know, I'm the same as you. I've probably been in situations where I haven't spoken up. I haven't challenged. I think we would all like to say or the vast majority of people would like to say I'm not a racist. You know, it's the same as me saying, oh, I can't, I'm not racist. You know, I'm married to somebody who isn't white. I've got mixed race children. But I think it's I think what it's more about is I, I've sort of tried to read and educate myself a lot more on it. Is, and, it and it's true what people say. It, it, it's not the overt racism, is it? It's not the people that you see saying these things, which you can quite easily say, yes, that's racist. It, it's the it's the it's the stuff that goes that the little things that get said that that we don't even realize sometimes that we say and I think that's a that comes from what's happened around us how you know what we've been exposed to from childhood growing up what we read in the newspapers how things are reported how things are written all these little things get absorbed in and we start to like take that on board as, as being like our kind of truth, if you like, and maybe just don't challenge it. And that's the stuff that you, I, I think somebody was saying that you, you need to be more nervous of. It's the people who say, oh, I'm not a racist. Or, you know, I've got a black friend or I've got, you know, but, you know, but actually looking at ourselves and our unconscious biases, biases which a lot of us probably have got. It's also those those the kind of what you're referring to is it those microaggressions, isn't it? It's exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And there yeah. was a, a a black rugby player on Radio Four, and I didn't hear the whole interviews. I didn't get his name. But it was one day last week, and he was talking about Black Lives Matter and all the rest of it. And he gave some really good examples of those microaggressions. So he was 
um, well educated, came from like a, you know, a, a good and inverted commas family, all that kind of stuff, public school education. And so he still gets comments like, oh, you've done well for a black lad. Mm. Oh, how did you manage to get yeah. into that school? And, and yeah. those kind of things. And, you know, it may well be that people just don't realise what they're yeah. saying, but it's about yeah. opening up to have those conversations. Yeah. And just yeah. going back to the whole Leona Lewis thing, I've been that black person who's been assumed would be shoplifting in the shop. Yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, yeah. I, think, I think maybe a kind of a, a short answer for me to the question of what George Floyd's murder means is kind of a wake up but mm. I suppose the thing that follows from that is the 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 the, 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 the soul searching you need to do about why why now after it why why would it take something like this to um to change things can we can we go on to the next question um and if is that if that's okay yeah yeah, yeah. we've started to talk a little bit about Issues, yeah, yeah, we did. Um, I'll just say what the next question is, and then I'll, I'll say something that's been written on Twitter and then perhaps go on from there. So um, question two is, why are we so quiet about racism? And uh, Diana Cotato, I hope I've pronounced that right, um, posted on Twitter, it makes me very uncomfortable how quiet the social work profession in the UK has been regarding what's going on in America or about what happens to black people in this country, especially considering how important they value social justice. Um, so why are we so quiet about racism? I mean, obviously, from a social work perspective, I, I, I'm, you know, I can't comment. But as a white person, I'll, I'll talk from my perspective and, and my personal view. I think speaking for myself, I think in in the past, I've probably been one of those people who've been like, you know, I, I don't consider myself to be racist, but I've not actually done anything to be maybe anti-racist. Mm. And I've probably, you know have been in that camp before of um, when when we've looked at um, how black people or people of colour are treated, I probably have looked at it and sort of said, well, you know, yeah, all lives matter. And I'll, and I'll admit that. And, and I've probably looked at things in that way. Um, but actually, you know, even before the, the George Floyd murder happened, I'd been starting to think a bit more in depth about this and actually kind of challenge myself because I think there's a whole host of reasons about why I've been quiet. And I think it's you touched on it before. There's things about worrying about getting it wrong if you say something. Um, there's also the fact of being very defensive because I think I've been very defensive in the past. Like if somebody was to say something that I might well think, oh, you know, I feel like you're you're attacking me or, you know, I wasn't responsible for like, you know, these things that have happened in the past and being very defensive about it. But actually, um, you know, having done a lot more reflection in, and, 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 and it is about education, I think, about education, about listening. Um, I think it's 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 not good enough to just say that I'm, I'm not racist. It is about being actively anti racist because i think um joey said near the beginning you know like white silence is compliance and i think that's true we can't rely on black people and people of color to try and make a change because they've tried to make a change they've been trying to make a change for x amount of years and nothing actually happened so it, it's it's time for us to actually address things and, and start to look at things and i think we all have individual responsibility in some way or another for that and I think, you know, if you are involved in organisations, then there's obviously things that you can do as regards that, as, as well as on a personal level as well. 
Yeah, I think that's really, really important. I think as well, in terms of, obviously, we started this particular section with Diane Cotato's, Cotato's um, quote. Again, I hope I pronounced that correctly, Diane, Diana. Um, I think, because of Diane, you said that that was specifically about social work. What struck me is that Martin Neri, back in 2014, when he looked at social work education, he said that we focused too much on anti-racism, diversity, and support that to me just gives a green light for what we've got going on now in terms of the social work perspective and the social work um all the training courses and stuff like that but i think as you said Anne, you're completely right you know it's about how is everyone or how can everyone be explicitly anti-racist and we'll come on to that in question two i guess won't we? but it's about how can everyone be explicitly anti-racist and mm. how can those who do enjoy white privilege what can they do what are they doing and it goes back as well doesn't it to what you said earlier on Joe, about these uncomfortable questions yeah. we all know many people who won't even think about those uncomfortable yeah. questions and it's how can we enable people to do that yeah I think that's a good point Farina and um, I recently had um uh, the task of bringing uh, a quality and diversity workshop to a group of social workers and their response to it was very, very interesting and in particular their response to white privilege. And for me there was a kind of a, an undercurrent in the room that kind of went along the lines of, well, I'm not that privileged. There's plenty of white people who are more privileged than I am and I've had it tough too. And there was there was kind of... An, an uncomfortableness with the idea that the privilege has absolutely nothing to do with your experience of life mm. or what or what assets you do or don't have it has to do with the fact that if you that your skin color privileges you that, that and that alone privileges you over other people which to me it's so it's about your pigmentation mm. and if you were born with less pigments then for some reason in our system our whole system is structured to privilege white people and that's regardless of whether you're a poor white person a rich white person uh, a white person who's had a very difficult background or a white person who's had a fantastic background and so there was something for me about the fact that there was an unwillingness to own white privilege in that way and then there's also the other thing and this came out in the in the, in the workshop as well and I thought this was just fascinating the fact is that if we want to actively address racism and if we want to change the way our society is structured, then white people will have to give things away. They will. They'll have to give away some of their power and privilege. And, and I was thinking of just things like how hard a parent fights to make sure that they buy a house in a nice area to get the kid into the right school so that they can have the right advantages. And I was kind of thinking, yeah, it's that kind of, yes, we want everybody to be equal, but not at the cost of anything that we have. Yeah. And I, I do think there's, there's some of that in there. Yeah, and I think um, from a sort of personal perspective, um, the reasons for being quiet about racism are partly partly personal, they're partly discomfort or um, unhelpful guilt or that defensiveness around um, wanting to be a good person. And then on a professional level, thinking about social work, um, I think there's many things that social work has going for it. 
the code of ethics, the kind of capabilities, the the ethos, the philosophy, the the way that we would try to work. Um, there's a problem with that because it can lead you to think that you're by just the nature of being a social worker, by virtue of being a social worker, somehow you'll be doing the work of anti-racism. Um, and then there's also something really um, important that Lena Dominelli said at um, the Basra Festival last week, which is that you can't rely on social workers to be to get this stuff right because they're working in a culture and a structural context that is racist so and is oppressive which means that you're going to be affected by that and I think that one of the things that um, that maybe we'd hoped in social work was that things would change organically without having to put in all that work to rebalance and redress and redistribute power and um, and I think some of that happened historic uh, you know, has happened really wonderfully at different periods in social work's history but I think recently we've been in a um, in a social and political context in the United Kingdom of of individual the ideology of the individual and the ideology that people make their make their luck um, and that's really affected um, social work's ability to do this and and so we're having to counter a lot anyway but we also have to counter a lot of ideology right now should we Maybe go on to question three, because that probably will help take the conversation on a bit. Yeah, OK, we've kind of started having this conversation, haven't we? So um, Wayne Reed, who's also another active, black, active social worker, kind of social media active, he posed a question on Twitter asking, what action would we like to see Basra take? And for those of you who aren't as familiar, Basra is the British Association of Social Workers. Answers included education of social workers, representative leadership. We speak out fearlessly, take a stand, put our heads above the parapet. Anti-racism is a central part of anti-oppressive practice. Actually do anti-oppressive practice, you know, ask people how they experience us and how they see it and how do we see our role as radical i think asking people how they experience us is absolutely crucial if we're going to start to make a difference in um social work practices in particular and the question is really what are we doing to be anti-racist now i already touched on martin nary's uh, discussion back in 2014 last week frontline um you know, a very high profile social work scheme. They published their racial diversity and inclusion plan. I think it's actually, and you know, Jerry might want to edit this bit out, but I think it's actually laughable that at this stage they have just had to publish that plan. They've just thought about publishing that plan and making their voices heard. And I think the targets in that are just laughable as well. Why we even still have to have targets just goes back to, I think your point, Joe, about white people being a willing to give things away, you know, give things up. So the frontline plan is a 22% target for their language, BAME participants in the 2020 cohort. As I said, I'm shocked that we still A, have targets. And why is it 22 and not 50 or 51? Yeah, why is it only 22%? And when I read the policy, the action plan, I thought it was something that was like 30 years old rather than written last week. And I think that speaks volumes about what is or isn't going on in our profession. And one of the cohorts or one member of the cohort from a couple of years ago talked about having had in the whole course half a day 
that covered power and privilege and there was absolutely nothing else on race for the whole of their kind of their university days their study days and I think as well you know I've mentioned Stephen Lawrence already earlier on for us to really start to make a difference it's people like Stephen Lawrence that we have to be included the impact on them the impact on his family what was it like for his family to wait all of that time to to achieve a degree of justice those things have to be included um the Central Park innocent men from Central Park again everyone will be familiar now with the documentary from Netflix of when they see us but the way that those and again that was the states but the way that they were treated and incarcerated and lost their lives effectively for such a long time you know all of those things I would say need to be included in social work education if we really are going to be anti-racist and if we're really going to start looking hard at our profession to try to make a change yeah, I saw the frontline plan. Um, I think I think it's probably not that out of step actually with what other organisations are doing and saying. Um, and Baswa, which I'm currently chair of, um, also has you know, an equality, diversity, and inclusion strategy, which was signed off last year, um, and has a plan and has just set up an advisory group. And the it always begs the question of like, why has this not happened before in a way that has left, led to lasting change? Um, we also have, um, you know, we had a lot of challenge last year, um, last week in the 50th celebration festival, um, where we're talking about some of these issues and rightly participants were saying, well, you know, what, why, why 50 years? You know, why, why is it taking so long? Um, why have you still not, why have you still not got representation on the board of directors and various other things? Um, from the, the kind of work that I've been engaged in the last year, I think standards can help you. And in fact, you need them because if you don't hold yourself to something public, a public statement, then you don't make progress. You make, you make progress if you hold yourself to a public statement, let's say. So the, the NHS's race equality standard is a, is a really powerful example of that. Um, but there is no getting away from the fact that it's it's sad and disappointing that we're still setting standards like this in 2020. Yeah, I think there's a lot, you know, when just looking at the statements that um, Freena read out about at the beginning and some of the things was take a stand, put heads above the parapet, speak out fearlessly. And I think just from what you've spoken there, that just highlights that just straight away, that that's, that's been the problem, I think, that people haven't spoken out fearlessly in organisations, white people as individuals haven't spoken out, haven't put their heads above the parapet to actually take a stand. Because I've, I've tried to read a lot and, and I've read, you know, things that black people have written, people of colour have written. And one of the things I've said as well is that, you know, they don't necessarily always want to be asked, oh, what do you what do you want us to do you know what shall we do because we shouldn't need to ask you know <laughs> what do what do you want to, we should be able to do it and I and I wonder how much it is this thing of like you know speaking up fearlessly putting a head above a parapet and also people I think just wanting to think that oh you know we're not racist you know we don't see colour not even wanting to get into the debate or the question and um and I might be wrong here Jerry but I, I just said uh, when when um Farina sort of like started off speaking and spoke about this whatever it was that had just been published and whatever and I I I kind of picked up a bit of defensiveness in your voice when when you kind of like replied to it at the beginning as mm. like well I'm the chairman of that I, I've done that and this is on a par with what other organizations have done and and I wonder whether that 
the sort of small level, but that's part of it, isn't it? It's that thing of like, you know, um, feeling very defensive about what we've done and, you know, and feeling having to defend that and um, rather than be able to be more fearless and be, you know, put ourselves forward more. Yeah, I think, I think that's a really fair, that. it's a really fair challenge. And it is, it is, um, it's nothing to have to defend yourself about accusations compared to having to fight for your own rights and your own survival. So, um, yeah, it's, I think it's just, um, there isn't really an excuse or an explanation and that makes it difficult. The only thing you can say is, this isn't good enough and this is what we're doing. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, I think that's right, because I think we can all say, I mean, I know I can say that I haven't done enough. I haven't, I haven't done enough that I can do. And, but all I can say now is that I'll commit to do more going forward. I'll educate myself more. I'll speak out more. I'll challenge more. I'll do what I can do in my own remit. Obviously, we can't change what's gone before, can we? And I think it is about being willing to take on take on yourself and others. And I don't know, Farina will hopefully remember this, but she might not. But can you remember when we first met Farina? And um, I think very early on I said, I mean, I've said lots of stupid things, but one of them was that um, that I don't see colour. Can you remember me saying that to you? Can you remember what I said? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because, of course, until that point, I thought that by saying that I was being anti-racist. But, of course, what I was being was really racist because, of course, I see colour. And, of course, I see your beautiful colour. And I notice when you've been out in Egypt and had a tan and, you know, everything looks gorgeous and I notice all sorts of things about people of course I do and I think one of the things for me that I learned then was actually why should different colors be something not to see why should it be something to be ashamed of why should it be something that we don't notice um and it's certainly not open-minded not to notice uh so for me you know, that was that was and that was what, maybe 12 years ago now or 13 years ago. Let's say it was like 50 years ago, Farina, just to make me feel better. But <laughs> I, don't know, like, I guess the point is that every day is a school day if you are a white person, because we have been taught and trained systemically from birth yeah. to value the white colour, to, we have a whole load of racial tropes that we believe in. So um, perhaps until really I practised as a social worker, there was a big part of me that thought that if somebody, a black man, had been arrested by the police, he was probably a criminal. Um, nowadays, of course, you hear so many stories about people who have just been in the neighbourhood and not even in the very close neighbourhood of where a criminal activity has taken place and that's enough for them to be considered a suspect. Um, there's all sorts of things that we can do, laws we can break. You know something, if I break the law, I do not expect to be killed for it. It does not enter my head. And that is actually regardless of what law I break, actually. Mm. And yet... I heard a story the other day about um, a, a white woman who was married to a black man and she'd forgotten to um, register the car, like pay the tax in America. 
and her husband started getting really angry with her and she was really shocked at him. And she said, you should stop yelling at me about this. It was just a mistake. And he said, yes, but I could get killed for your mistake. If I am pulled over driving this car without these papers, I could actually die for that. And that really struck me. And I just thought, yeah, I have never in my life thought mm. that I could die for breaking a law or making a mistake. Mm. And for me, it's talking about those things and challenging yourself. How comfortable is that position for me? Yeah, I mean, I think two of the, two of the things that have happened for me personally around trying to be anti-racist are firstly, not, kind of even knowing that the opposite of racist is anti-racist and not not racist, that there's no neutral. If you're not actively being racist, then you're kind of you're not being racist. That you have to be an, actively anti-racist. Um, and the other thing is the the discomfort that you kind of go through yourself and rightly and that you try to, to address and that kind of constant learning, you have to do that with your white friends and family and colleagues yeah. and people around yeah. you. And I think part of the reason you know, we had that question about why we're so quiet about racism, one of the things I've written down here and, and circled is the word friends, because actually the people that I have to challenge are people that I like. Yeah. And I think that's quite difficult sometimes. Um, but who 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 should be challenging who we should be challenging each other we should be working with yeah. people that we love to to change these things um but i think the, the segregation that there is in our society is also a factor here um yeah there have been periods in my life when i've been able to not notice racism at all um mm. and not get not be made uncomfortable had to think at all about the need to be anti-racist um which is a an awful privilege you know it's a it's a privilege that is a, is a really terrible truth so yeah I think that's right Jerry we've um we've been able to spend long periods of our life feeling perfectly comfortable um <laughs> and 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 yes we're feeling very uncomfortable at the moment but that's a good thing and it's interesting what you said then I actually deliberately don't have any of these types of conversations with a very close friend of mine. And until tonight, I had thought that that was being a good friend, but it'll probably, it will definitely be being a better friend to have the conversation. And I think it is quite difficult to have conversations, isn't it, with people that are close to you and with friends. And I've already kind of had that with somebody who's close to me that I've been a lot more just vocal on um, Facebook um, got, went to the Black Lives Matter protest here in Peterborough and I've been a lot more vocal and that actually I won't say who it was but it actually touched the nerve with someone who was very close to me who um, actually rang up somebody else I know not me and was actually quite worried about me um <laughs> quite worried about me you know and I think it it was challenging for them it was challenging for them it obviously struck a nerve with them and also uh, you know for, probably because it obviously touched on stuff for them but also to see me changing in a way maybe me changing the way that I'm having conversations and me actually challenging and they couldn't actually deal with that but it was quite interesting that they didn't come to me to kind of have that conversation. They kind of voiced it with um, somebody else. And, and yeah, you're right. It is having kind of like those um, conversations um, 
and those difficult conversations, those challenging conversations. And that can feel really uncomfortable sometimes. I mean, just to um, go into that, I said about being the mother of mixed race children. And I had a, did have a discussion with my children and sort of said, oh, you know, how's it been for you? You know, mixed race, you know, you aware or have you ever actually been on the receiving end of racism? And they said they hadn't. But I think what they have been on the receiving end of is, as Farina said, and as I touched on earlier on, is either those microaggressions or those comments. Now, for example, I hope my son doesn't mind me saying this. Um, I, I He'd forgotten about this. And I actually remembered after I'd had the discussion with him um, when he was at university, we went to visit him one one day and he it, I think it was his first year and he was sharing, um, you know, like an apartment with four or five other people. And we got on well with and um, they'd sent him a birthday card and but they'd actually addressed it to I, I can't remember the phone, but it was something like Abdul the Packy. And I said to him, I, I was like, I can't believe they they they've written that. You know, that's that's just not funny. And and he was kind of like, oh, oh you know, it was just a joke. You know, they're just and, and, and for him, he laughed it off. He laughed it off. He didn't, you know. And, and so I think there's that there's that discomfort from, from that side as well. He, he just laughed it off and said, oh, no, no, that that was, you know, just a joke. But it wasn't a joke. And, and they they would probably all say, no, we're not racist. Yeah, we were just we were just, you know, having a laugh. Um, but that's an that's an example as well. And, and he as a mixed race, um, you know, man, he, he just laughed it off and didn't say anything because perhaps it would have been uncomfortable for him to have said something so he just kind of like went along with it yeah I mean I'm just reflecting so on, on what yeah. I was saying before about not wanting to have conversations with friends and family and yet I leave it to you know, black colleagues and you know, to have those conversations which are infinitely harder um which is yeah it's that's the problem isn't it if, if white people duck out of the conversations that's part of it but joey but also right particularly black women if we have those conversations we are labeled as aggressive and shouty and angry and people tune out because they just think oh there's the angry black woman moaning again you know mm. that is a fact of life as a black or woman. i think it's the thing of like oh they've got a chip on their shoulder yeah oh yeah. all that all oh, slavery that happened however many hundred years ago you know that you know that wasn't us we we didn't have anything to do with that you know it's that defensiveness kicking in isn't it and and going back to the thing about white privilege and not being wanting to acknowledge because the very word for some reason privilege obviously straight away people kind of like flare up at, at that at that word and um don't like it do they and it's very uncomfortable for people to acknowledge and i wondered having reflected on it a lot myself that I think for some people, it challenges their very identity that because that's part of who you are. And if you take that away with who you are, and perhaps I'm talking more so as well with people who, who we probably would look at and, and think are more overtly racist, as in, you know, people who like to call themselves in adverted commas patriots, um, you know, but that 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 is the core of who they are aren't they then they're, they're probably not going to those you know people aren't going to like ever sort of really look at what white privilege means or be able to acknowledge that I think that's a really good point 
Um, oh, there's so much to think about in this, isn't there? We could, yeah, we should have done a series, Jerry. <laughs> I think actually it would have been quite um, interesting. It would have been quite nice maybe to have um, some more black colleagues or, you know, people from minority ethnic backgrounds, perhaps as part of the podcast to kind of maybe be a part of this. Because I'm aware as well that although I've got, you know, mixed race children, that it is three white women yeah, speaking exactly. here yeah. With, uh, with Farina, and you know, so in that sense, it's it, it is imbalanced. I mean, I can only speak from my perspective as to you know my thoughts on it, um, but that would perhaps have been quite nice to sort of have maybe a more range of people within the the podcast. Yeah, yeah, I think it's yeah, a, it's, a, it's yeah. another example of um, kind of. That you you start you start something but you have to do so much more and actually the yeah um yeah I mean it's it's something but it's not it's not enough like like with most most things definitely yeah yeah um we have we have one more question don't we we do we do um and it, and it's and it's quite a good question to for us to end our discussion on I think um and I'm going to start with a powerful message. That's from Simon Albury, and he's the chair at the Campaign for Broadcasting Equality. Sorry, he's MBE. And this is the quote. Your black employees are exhausted. Your black employees are scared. Your black employees are crying in between meetings. Your black employees have mentally checked out. Your black employees are putting on a performance. Forgive us if our work isn't up to par. We just saw a lynching. Pardon us if we're quiet in the Zoom meetings. We're wondering if we'll be the next hashtag. Spare some grace if we're not at the company happy hour because the hour of joy that most adults look forward to has been stolen from us due to the recent string of black death. We're biting our tongues, swallowing our rage and fighting back tears to remain professional because expressing that hurt caused by witnessing black death is considered more unprofessional than black men and women actually being killed. So if you can, please be mindful. Your black employees are dealing with a lot. And the question that we wanted to think about that rises from that is, what are we doing to support black colleagues? And that's a good question for me, I think. Um, it's something that I think about a lot and I don't always get it right, that's for sure. But the first thing that I feel you should do is you should ask them if they're okay. You should ask them if these issues have touched them or distressed them in a way that they are not able to deal with. So I'm not saying that, of course, they've touched them and distressed them, but that they've got support around them if they need anything from you at all. And I think that you should acknowledge that they're, they're terrible and distressing events and, and see what comes back to you from that. Um, for me, it's about not being afraid to actually raise raise the issue and be prepared for whatever answer you get and you don't always get uh, an answer that you know you shouldn't you shouldn't ex you should ex just accept whatever answer you get mm. back I guess is what I'm trying to say there 
Yeah, I think it's listening, um, listening with empathy, isn't it? I think it's it's listening without sort of, you know, becoming defensive, all the other things that we've spoken about earlier on, but actually properly listening and acknowledging. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the, um, you know, just, just thinking about how we've been over this podcast, that's that's one of the hardest things is just to empty out your own um, response and reaction and leave space. And it's one of the things that um, I remember listening to a podcast by René Adelodge about this, um, which was, I think the podcast was actually cool, but one of the, the big phrases from it was white woman crying is racist, which was about white people's reactions taking over white fragility mm. yeah it's white fragility. yeah yeah it, what's the name Robin D'Angelo's written about it as well yeah. isn't it and the fact that you know if we have a difficult conversation if a black person has a difficult conversation with a white person or a white woman in particular um they turn on the tears as it were and that kind of just diverts attention away and that yeah. itself is a racist act it's all about that yeah. stuff isn't it mm. so yeah so I think actually containing yourself so speaking again as a, as a white person to containing yourself and giving room to people um because there hasn't been enough room and one of the things that people have asked for in Basel and I know that this is this is good practice everywhere is is a, a space a kind of a space for for um workers from ethnic minority backgrounds to to meet and have their own space um and also kind of safe spaces for those conversations that need to happen to so making room essentially for um for the support that's needed and making room for the for the things that need to be said and i think another thing that for me um that's come up out of this is ensuring actually if you if, if you like i do if i have responsibility for an organization ensuring that my organization are having those conversations and that if a black person initiates a conversation about what's been happening that they actually get some answers and they get some engagement because one of the things that can happen and Farina alluded to this at the at the start of the podcast is as as a black person you can be willing to actually have hard conversations and to to do some of the work um, that you probably arguably shouldn't have to do but then if you're doing that work into a vacuum I think that's just insulting and wrong and we need to really be mindful as organisations and as leads in organisations that we have an expectation of proper attention and proper conversation and a, a proper two-way dialogue and that it's not just a huge amount of effort in one quarter, but it's something that we all embrace actively and that you know and that we have an expectation that the people in our organization will behave um actively in an in, in an anti-racist manner yeah i think it's being prepared like you say to to try and make changes as as organizations to put as we've said before put your head above the parapet and accept that sometimes you may get things wrong um and that's okay um it's how you kind of learn from that and how you go forward but there's a lot that you know you can still do within a structure to try and make change. And can I? I'm, this is kind of diverting off the issue just a little bit. But the, when you said the message at the beginning, you spoke about Simon Albury, MBE, and now Freena will know about this member of the British Empire. Joe signed now, your petition. Yeah. Now we haven't got mm. 
we have that's to me because we were talking about structures that's why i just wanted to bring that in because there's a structure there isn't there absolutely that doesn't you know exist anymore and obviously there's a lot that can be said about the british empire and what it was responsible Mm -hmm. for so so there's a structure straight away isn't there that that you know and it's um, interesting isn't it Anne? i mean joe and i've talked about this but somebody that i know that my husband and i know was awarded one of those gongs a little while back Mm. and the reason for the award was um the work done to prevent modern slavery and I said to Robert mm. at the time the irony is just completely yeah. lost on them isn't it yeah so, yes yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah I mean one of the things actually that I've just written again on the on my notes and put a circle around in terms of what we can do to support black colleagues is I've just written apology like I think I think being prepared to apologize and to say that you're sorry not just for the things that that you carry with you but also the things that your organization or your accountability where your accountability lies personally and professionally and organizationally they they you should be ready to apologize and ready to do that in a kind of genuinely meaningful way which is that this this hasn't been good enough and this is what we're going to try and do or this is what we're doing or this is um, yeah, this is um, formalised in Australia, Jerry, mm-hmm. and um, we don't have the best track record, really, um, in dealing with black and ethnic minorities in Australia, particularly with dealing with Aboriginal peoples. But we do have a sorry day, a national sorry day. And the concept of this day is when all Australians turn to the Indigenous communities and say they're sorry, that they're sorry for invading their country that they're sorry for the ongoing struggles and difficulties and the power structures that are in place um, for the stolen generation and for for many other things. And I think that that has been certainly not the answer, Mm. but it has been more healthy dialogue than we were having prior to that. Um, And I think it's that part that follows the apology, isn't it? It's the Mm. acting differently. We can say, uh, sorry, you know, but we shouldn't expect that we're going to get, you know, oh, you know, oh, that's okay, that's all right. You know, it's not all right, is it? You know, it's it's doing it, uh, I think, for the right reasons, actually saying that you're sorry. And then, like you say, actually being prepared to kind of then do something about it going forward. Yeah, it's not for absolution absolution of our guilt. It's it's for acknowledgement of the current situation and wanting to have honest dialogue about how we can yeah. help make it different and actively make it different. So have we lost... I think you've touched on this, haven't you, Jane? If, if you kind of have responsibility, then you have responsibility for the organisation. I'm an independent, but I have made a concerted effort to keep in better touch with my black colleagues, particularly during lockdown as well and that for me is something that I want to what well, I will I want to I will continue doing as well so I think it's about just making the most of all of those opportunities and having those conversations and kind of if, if you kind of you have a relationship with somebody we should be able to recognize if maybe they are feeling a little anxious or whatever and you know respond appropriately I think it's those kinds of things that I'm trying to be more no I'm, I'm being more conscious of. Okay, so I think um, 
we're coming probably towards the end of the podcast. It's a longer one than usual, but that's great. And it's it's probably I mean, it's nothing like long enough for all the things that we could talk about. Um, I've certainly learned an awful lot from this conversation. And Farina, is there anything more that you wanted to to talk about or to to ask about? No, I think, like you said, there's probably loads and loads you, we could speak about and it could, probably could take hours and hours. So, yeah, difficult. Yeah, I think, as you said, it's it's a starter, isn't it? It's an opener. Hmm. I think that's right. You know, there's a platform here. We're very lucky that lots of people listen to us. Um, and so, therefore, we're, we are privileged to be able to bring these issues you know forward and and have conversations about them and we should we should keep just have we should have conversations we should have them everywhere we can with everyone we can um regardless of how uncomfortable they are yeah I'll, I'll certainly be interested in the the feedback um for this podcast and what people's you know views and opinions are of of what we've spoken about mm. So do tell us what you think um, when you have a chance to listen to it. And um, thank you so much, Anne and Farina, for, for joining us and for challenging us. And hopefully the, the, the difficult bits of the, of the podcast will be something that will encourage others to, to have conversations that they maybe yeah. wouldn't have had before. If, if that was an outcome, that would be that would be great. Absolutely. Thank you very much, everyone, for your time. It's been a really, really useful spend of mind. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you.